Merry Christmas. Pull this off. No, isn't that beautiful? I thought that would be better than, than hearing me read through that one more week. I'm so thankful for the gift of music. And what I've loved about walking through this series over this Advent season is that it, it invites us to recognize the story. And sometimes I think we can lose sight of, of this grand story that's taking place from start to finish. The Bible is one book telling one story, and we're going to talk about that later. But as we've walked through this genealogy and as we've observed the women in this genealogy, it's been preparing the way for the star of the show. Matthew 1, verse 16, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So we've been walking through and we've been considering the women in the genealogy. I've used the term um, curious footnotes. And uh, I confess that that was actually Pastor Paul's term. We were in the preaching workshop and he said, uh, I can't remember what I had written, something clumsy. And he said, well, they're like curious footnotes. I said, (laughs) he always does this. And so I've been going with it. But to be fair, Mary is not a curious footnote, right? There's nothing curious about this footnote. Why is Mary included in this genealogy? Because she was chosen by God to be the mother of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Um, The preaching workshop said, you really ought to work in a pun and say, we are going to have a Merry Christmas. And I said, no, nobody will laugh. And I was right. (laughs) I was right. So, see, they're not always right. This morning, we're going to come to the end of this series, and we are going to consider Mary, the fifth woman in this genealogy. And we're going to look to her life. She has provided for us a compelling example. And so we're going to stop and we're going to consider that. But the bulk of our time this morning, we're we're actually going to spend turning our attention from Mary to Mary's son. Because I imagine Mary would scold us if we didn't do that this morning. Right? Mary recognizes that she was, what was so special about her was that she was chosen by God to give birth to the son of God. And so, to that end, we're going to look to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, you can turn there now. And, and maybe that feels a little bit weird. You know, we, we've been walking through Matthew's gene, genealogy, and we're ending here in Luke chapter 1. But we're doing so because, again, we want to focus in on Mary and to see the scene from her perspective. And in no gospel other than Luke do we see this captured so clearly. And that's because we believe that Luke actually interviewed Mary as he was preparing his gospel. And so... I find this interesting, so maybe, maybe this will be helpful for you. Just imagine the fact that Luke sat down with Mary, uh, advanced in years, and he sat down and he said, tell me about what happened, Mary. Uh, we want to we wanna capture this. We want to remember this. What, what, was, what was that night like? And then you can just imagine Mary, advanced in years, she closes her eyes and she smiles, and she begins to imagine this night when an angel appeared to her and her whole life changed. When she began to imagine that moment when, when her story was turned on its head and she found herself become the mother of, of the Son of God and, and Luke's scribbling down these notes as she shares her story. That's what we find here in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. So hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living and active word to us today. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. 
But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as I mentioned, we're going to spend the bulk of our time considering this announcement from the angel Because Mary would readily tell us that she is not the star of this show. And yet, I want to make sure we don't rush past her. Because what we see in her example is is compelling. What we find is an example that we ought to learn from. So let's, let's do that now before we go any further. Let's learn from Mary's example. Now, at this point, Mary would have been a young teenager. Um, So imagine a 14-year-old young woman when she received this visitation. And we don't know exactly what the angel Gabriel looked like. You know, the Bible's interesting. Sometimes we find these descriptions of angels, but I would say the thing that we can really put a stamp on is that every time angels appear to people in the Bible, people fall on their faces in fear. And so 14-year-old Mary here has this encounter with an angel, and and no doubt she was absolutely overwhelmed. And we know this because the first thing that Gabriel says to her is, do not be afraid. So I imagine she's probably lying on the floor at this point in fear. And Gabriel says, no, don't be afraid. You found favor with God. You've been chosen to bear his own son. So before we get to that announcement, let's, let's just, what do we learn from this young woman? And I'd say the first thing that we learn is an example of humility. An example of humility. So she's just heard that she's favored by the Lord. She's just heard that she will bear the Son of God. And she replies, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Now, this is one area where we have a, a, a bit of a difference with our Catholic brothers and sisters. And so I want to tread carefully here, but I want to say it clearly. Um, you can make too much of Mary. And so, for example, in Catholicism, you'd pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, with the assumption that she's going to overflow grace. But Mary is not the, the giver of grace. She's the receiver of grace. And she would tell us that. She says, I'm a servant of God. That's who Mary is. She's not a co-redemptrix meaning she's not involved in our redemption. She's not a mediatrix, which means she's not the mediator between God and man. She understood herself to be a servant. She declared herself to be a servant. After receiving this announcement, she wrote a song and she proclaimed, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, 
and holy is his name. Again, you can see Mary's disposition. It's to turn all attention, not on herself, it's to turn the attention to her great God. Holy is his name. He has done great things, and I'm a servant of the Lord. I'm so thankful to be a part of it. People will call me blessed because I'm a part of it, but holy is his name. And so while I want to make sure that we don't elevate Mary to an inappropriate place, now I want to speak a word to that Protestant disposition in us, which tends to jump the other direction and just to rush right past Mary. I'd say, let's not do that. Let's not rush past her. Let's see here that this, this young woman set a brilliant example of humility. I mean, from time to time, I'll, I'll preach a sermon and I'll receive some positive feedback. And, and sometimes I'll, I'll feel a little bit of pride after delivering a sermon. But here's Mary and she's about to deliver the Son of God. And there is no pride in her, right? She's got this humble disposition She's about to nurse and swaddle the infinite holy God of the universe. And yet she does not boast. She sees it as a reason to marvel. She doesn't see herself as the hero, but as the servant. And that's an example that we should learn from. Should the Lord use us in whatever way he pleases? He won't use us this way, but in whatever way he he decides to use us, let's make sure that we turn all glory to him. So she's an example of humility, but then second, before we move on, I want us to see that she's an example of faith. So Mary was betrothed, and you've probably heard this explained, but a a betrothal was like our engagement, but different. So for example, in our culture, if you were to get engaged, that says something. That says that you're taking that relationship very seriously. It says that you intend to move towards marriage. It's a a very serious step of um, uh, commitment. And yet, if you're an engaged couple, you could cancel that engagement tomorrow, couldn't you? And there'd be no legal ramifications. Uh, You might be a little bit embarrassed, but that would be the end of it. Well, it's not the same way with a betrothal. A betrothal was a legally binding relationship. To be betrothed was the equivalent of being married. And so you'd have to go through the whole divorce proceeding. And there'd be lots of, of shame built into it. Which means that when the angel appears to Mary, and he tells her that she's going to bear a child... Mary would have very real costs rolling around in her mind. There'd be real consequences for her. A pregnancy would serve as undeniable evidence that Mary had been unfaithful. Because in the court of law, this story about an angel visiting and God hovering over her wouldn't hold up. And she would have known this, right? Now, legally, technically, the punishment for adultery was was death. But as we look back in history, that they weren't following through with that. So she, she likely wouldn't have been stoned, but she would have been ostracized. She would have been humiliated. She would have been disowned. And that's, that's not even to consider the relational cost. Remember, she's betrothed to marry Joseph. And I imagine she was very excited to marry Joseph. She's looking forward to a life with him. She's looking forward to a future with him. And yet in an instant, all of that is gone. In weeks past, we've considered how difficult it would be for widows to survive in those days. How much more difficult would it be for a young single mom who's been ostracized and humiliated and cast out from her community? All of this is probably rushing around 14-year-old Mary's brain, and yet, in a tremendous display of faith, this young teenage woman declares, let it be to me according to your word. Which is a remarkable statement, isn't it? Now, Mary didn't know that the angel was going to visit Joseph and that he was going to confirm the story. 
Mary didn't know that that future she was looking forward to with Joseph was still intact, that that she would still be able to enjoy that family. She didn't know how all of this would play out, but she knew that God had decreed it. And she knew that her God was good. And so she was in. She counted the cost and she responded with faith. And that is an example that we should learn from. She carried the Son of God in her womb. She gave birth in conditions that are horrifying for for any mother here. She laid him to rest for his first night on earth in a manger. Martin Luther invites us to to picture this scene. So let's just take a minute and, and imagine this. Martin Luther says, think, women. There was no one there to bathe the baby. No warm water, nor even cold. No fire, no light. The mother herself midwife and the maid. The cold manger was the bed and the bathtub. Who showed the poor girl what to do? She'd never had a baby before. I'm amazed that the little one did not freeze. Do not make of Mary a stone. For the higher people are in the favor of God, the more tender. I think that's helpful advice. Do not make of Mary a stone. And I would say, and do not make of Tamar a stone or of Rahab a stone, or of Ruth a stone, or of Bathsheba a stone. These are real people. If I could remind you of something this morning, as we come to our Bibles and as we read these stories, these are real people, real lives that God has inserted himself into, real stories that are unfolding, a real family that God entered into. And we've considered their stories, and we've learned from their examples But now this morning, our focus must shift from the footnotes in the genealogy to the star of the show. And with the time that we have left, I want to listen into this angel's announcement and to consider the child of promise, the child at the end of this genealogy, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Who is this Jesus who is called the Christ? What will he be? To answer that question, I want to consider the angel's announcement to Mary that we found in Luke. The first thing that we learn, and we're going to pull out three three things here. The first thing that we learn about this child is that he will be born of a virgin. Upon hearing the announcement that she would bear a son, Mary asks, how will this be since I am a virgin? Which is a very good question. And in fact, it's a question that many people have been wrestling with through the ages. How many of your neighbors think that you're absolutely insane for believing in the virgin birth? I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but probably all of them, right? One Bible scholar notes, the virgin birth is posted on guard at the door of the mystery of Christmas. And none of us must think of hurrying past it. It stands on the threshold of the New Testament, blatantly supernatural, defying our rationalism, informing us that all that follows belongs to the same order as itself, and that if we find it offensive, there's no point in proceeding further. I like that quote. I think that that's that's good commentary, because that's what the virgin birth does. Right here at the beginning of the New Testament, we're confronted by a God who works miracles. And if in our pride... We're not willing to humble ourselves and say, God can do that. If in our pride, our skepticism bubbles up and we say, but that, it can't be, but, but. This commentator says, well, just close your Bible then. Because you're going to be discouraged as you keep reading. We serve a God who works miracles. We serve a God who created the universe out of nothing, which means 
He's not bound by its laws. He's the author of them. He can do as he pleases. And it pleased God to send his son into the world, into the womb of a virgin. Why did he do that? Well, in doing so, he was fulfilling a promise that he made long ago to the prophets of old. Matthew picks up on this, and here's what he says. Matthew says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Matthew is considering the virgin birth, and his mind immediately goes back to a prophecy from the book of Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah said this day would come. Now, Isaiah wrote 700 years before this virgin birth. 700 years before Jesus would come. Isaiah wrote at a time when the northern tribe of Israel was was being wiped out by the Assyrians. He wrote at a time just a generation before the Babylonians would come and would carry the southern tribe away into exile. Meaning Isaiah wrote at a time of darkness. And he said, in the midst of this darkness, the, the... The voice of a child, the cries of a child are going to break through the night. And that child will be called God with us, Emmanuel. And that child will be a sign of victory. And Matthew, as he considers all that's happened, he he sees this child and he hears of this virgin birth and he says, this is that. This is God fulfilling his promise, keeping his promise, finishing what he started. Ben Myers writes, The confession that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin isn't just a bit of theological eccentricity. Meaning, this wasn't just God saying, look what I can do. No, it's not a random miracle story. It's a reminder that our faith has deep roots in Israel's story and Israel's scriptures. The coming of the Savior wasn't just a new thing. It was the culmination of the whole great story of God's loving faithfulness to the people of Israel. So as I mentioned off the top, I hope that this series through the genealogy has helped in part, helped you to see that this is one story. From start to finish, from Genesis to Revelation, this is one story. It's a story of a holy God. It's a story of his people who were made to be in relationship with him, but who have been separated because of sin. And it's a story of how this holy loving God has put a plan in motion to bring us back into relationship with himself. That is the story. And as we read our Bibles, we see these clues and these hints. And in every detail of Jesus' life, he is picking up these clues and hints from the Old Testament. And he is powerfully fulfilling them. For example, look at verse 35. The angel speaks to Mary. And he says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. This language here is intentional. He's drawing our attention right back to Genesis, right back to the beginning when the Spirit hovered over the waters during creation. You remember that scene? But he's also drawing our attention to when the glory of God came down over the temple and the tabernacle. When God instituted the tabernacle, remember, he said, this is the place where you will gather and you will worship me, and his glory filled the place. And and Luke is picking up this language, Gabriel is capturing this language And it's reminding us that God is doing something here that he prepared us to recognize in the past. His glory overshadowed Mary because this child would be for us the new temple. The new meeting place with God. God with us, Emmanuel. The Spirit hovered over her as he did over the waters in Genesis. Because in Jesus, God is ushering in 
a new beginning. Right? See the true and better Adam come to save the hellbound man. This special child, this miracle child will be born of a virgin. He will be truly God and truly man. That's the first thing that Luke would have us see. Second, we're told that he will save his people from their sins. Say, where do you see this? Well, we see this in his name. See, neither Mary nor Joseph chose the child's name. Rather, it was chosen for him. The angel declared to Mary, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, you might find this interesting. I think it's interesting. At the time that this name was given to him, Jesus was a relatively common name. Uh, So you can imagine in our culture, you know, Luke or Mark. It's it's a name that that people had. Um, It's taken over from the Hebrew. It's It's actually in Hebrew, the name is Joshua. And it's taken from the Hebrew word yeshav, which means to save. And so in, this, in these days in Jerusalem, there would have been lots of little, little Jesuses running around. And he says, this child, you're going to name this child Jesus. And when he, visits, when he visits Joseph and he tells him that he's going to name him Jesus, he explains why. The angel tells Joseph, she will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. So he says, this Jesus will be unlike all the rest because he will live a life worthy of his name. He will save his people. They won't be the salvation they expected. He will save his people, but not from their political opponents. He will save his people, but not from their hardships, not from their circumstances. No, he will save his people from their sins. Last week, we considered the story of of David's affair with Uriah's wife. And we were confronted by the terrible reality of sin. And we saw that Matthew intentionally used this in his genealogy. He intentionally drew our minds and our attention, our thoughts here, because he wanted us to see the problem, the greatest problem that exists within us all. And we all need, we need all the help we can get to focus on that great problem because We live our lives with a willful ignorance of our real problem. The Puritan John Owen writes, It is to be feared that very many have little knowledge of the main enemy that they carry about with them in their bosoms. Can I read that quote again? It is to be feared that very many have little knowledge of the main enemy that they carry about with them in their bosoms. It's a scary thing that there are not many people who take seriously the danger of the sin that exists inside of us. We need to come to terms with the fact that we're capable of some pretty awful things apart from the grace of God. It's so much easier for us to point outwards when it comes time to ascribe blame for what's wrong with the world. The problem is out there, we say. It's a political problem. The problem is financial. The problem is external. The problem is them. The problem is him. The problem is her. We convince ourselves that we suffer from this external problem, and so then we spend our whole lives putting all our hope in external solutions, which can never actually solve the problem. In the early 1900s, the London Times invited authors to submit essays in answer to this question, what is wrong with the world today? And the Christian author G.K. Chesterton famously submitted this brief essay in response. I'm going to read his essay this morning. He said, Dear Sir, I am. G.K. Chesterton. Profound, isn't it? I am what's wrong with the world. You are 
what's wrong with the world. Our greatest heroes, the best men and women that we can muster, are all plagued with the same problem. Our problem is sin. And no external solution can solve it because it runs deep into the hearts of us all. Matthew was preparing us to recognize as we approach the manger that we need a Savior who will save us, not from the Romans, not from our situation. We need a Savior who will save us from ourselves. A Savior who will save us from our sin. And he was preparing us to see that the Savior has come. That's who this child is. And that is why he was to be called Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. That's the second thing that we have to see. But the angel won't let us stop there. Third and finally, Gabriel goes on to explain that he will reign forever on David's throne as the Son of God. The angel declared to Mary, he will be great and he will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end A few verses later, the angel explains, Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, on this side of the resurrection, we hear that differently. On this side of the the resurrection, we hear that as a clear announcement that Jesus is divine. Right? That's, That's what we hear. But we need to recognize that Mary would have likely heard that differently at the time. She likely wouldn't have understood it entirely. Instead, this language would have left her envisioning a king. It probably would have brought her mind back to Psalm 2, where we read this. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. You see, the Davidic kings were referred to as the sons of God. So Mary likely would have heard this at first as a marvelous promise that her son would reign on the throne of David. You know that song, Mary, Did You Know? I've gone back and forth on it so many times because some people laugh and and they say, you know, we sing Mary, Did You Know? And they say, of course she knew. Did you not read Luke? The angel told her all these things. But then I was listening to it last night and I, I thought, I think it's fair to ask, did she know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? I don't think that she did. You know, what did Mary know? When this announcement was made to her, it seems likely that what she understood when this announcement was made was that she would have a son who would reign on the king on the throne of David. Her son would be the king they had been longing for. Did Mary's mind immediately understand that he would be divine? I don't think so. But as I mentioned earlier, the Bible is one story. And so there's a reason why these Davidic kings were referred to as the sons of God is because little hints were being planted, seeds were being sown, lights were being shone forward to to point to something. At the time, did people realize that's what was happening? Probably not. Um, Young people here, I I was thinking of the term, I think it's called Easter eggs. Is that that the right term? No, I don't know. Yes. So, for example, if you were watching the uh, big film series, let's say I'll use Star Wars to kind of try and capture broad demographic. If you're watching Star Wars, by the time you get to the end of the series, it all makes sense. And when you go back and watch from the beginning, you see these little clues. Now, when you watched it the first time, did you recognize this clue? No. No, you didn't have any idea. But now that you know how the story ends, you can see all these pieces as they're coming together. Well, that's what we find in the Bible. 
now that we know how the story ends, we look back and we see all these little hints and clues that were preparing us, preparing us to appreciate, preparing us to see and receive our Savior. And one of the clues, one of the lights that was shining forward was that these Davidic kings would be referred to as the sons of God. Why was that? It was preparing us to recognize the Son of God who would come from the line of David, who would fulfill perfectly what they were pointing forward to. And that's who this child is. The angel told Mary, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So this eternal king will reign forever over a kingdom that encompasses all of heaven and earth. And even as I wrote that sentence in, my, uh, in the office on Tuesday, I could hear my kids singing a memory verse from this year. Any parents remember the verse I'm thinking of? Your kingdom is an e- Okay, if the kids were here, they would rock. Is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures for all generations. That, that verse, it's actually from Psalm 145. Let me just read to you a chunk from Psalm 145, talking about how God reigns as our king. It says, All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, And all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. To make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom, we're talking to God here. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And your dominion endures throughout all generations. So Psalm 145 declares that God is the one who reigns over the everlasting kingdom. And yet Mary is promised that The son in her womb, the child in her womb, will reign forever over a kingdom with no end. So who is going to be the one who reigns? Is it it God or is it man? And here the light bulb comes on and we, we begin to see how these pieces fit together, right? The prophecies of old, the types and the foreshadowing, they were all preparing us to recognize that a divine king was coming. A king who would be in the line of David, And yet, who would be the true Son of God? A king who would be truly God and truly man. A king who would overcome our greatest enemy and who would save us from the curse of sin and death. A king who will reign over all creation forever. And friends, that is what he's done and that is who he is. At the end of Matthew's Gospel, before Jesus ascended to heaven, he declared, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me has been given to me. Not will be, has been. Jesus right now possesses all authority. This is his kingdom right now. That's what he announced before he ascended to heaven and came to his father. And Ephesians 1 tells us that his father seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he that is God Put all things under his feet. All things are under Jesus' feet. He reigns now. Now there will come a day when the the king will return and he will ultimately once and for all wipe out our enemy. That day is coming. But for now, rest assured, he is reigning. He is in complete control. All authority has been given to him. The king has come. He's already dealt the death blow to our enemy. He bore our sin He nailed it to the cross. He triumphed over the grave. He ascended to the throne. And from thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. And this Christmas, as we come to the end of our Advent series, 
I just want to leave you with one reminder, and it is this. As Christians, we know how this story ends. So we've been walking through the story, and and intentionally we've been walking through, and I want you to see the humanity of the story and the familiarity of the story. That God entered into a story, not a fairy tale. He entered into life. He entered into a family, a family not so different from your own. That's the story that God has entered into. It's our story. But we know how this story ends. The enemy wants us to despair. He wants us to fixate on how broken the world is and how broken we are. And he wants us to doubt the goodness and the authority of our king. But God is working. God was working when Tamar was neglected by her family. God was working when Rahab felt trapped in a life of prostitution. God was working when Ruth's husband died and she appeared doomed to live a life of poverty. God was working when Bathsheba was betrayed by her king and was robbed of her husband. God was working, even in the gruesome details. Even when it seemed like all hope was lost, there was a glimmer that shone through. God was working when an angel appeared to a young virgin named Mary and turned her world upside down. God has entered into this story, into our sometimes tragic story, and he's transforming it into a triumph. He's taken our apparent defeats, and he's turned them into a great and marvelous victory. He's working. And Christmas reminds us of this. Even when all external appearances look grim, we can declare with the Apostle Paul, no, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How can we make that declaration with the Apostle Paul? How can we say that with confidence? It's because we serve the King and He reigns. And he has all authority right now. And he is good. And he's told us how this story ends. And so, even in seasons when it looks particularly dark, and we've been through a few of those. Some of you are in the midst of one of those seasons right now. Uh, one, of, uh, one of the members of the worship team mentioned as we were praying, and they were just thanking God that this time last year, we were in an empty gymnasium. And I had forgotten that. I think my brain had clouded all of that out. But it's true. This time last year, everybody was at home bracing for another extended lockdown. We didn't know how long it would be. Uh, broken up, fellowship. It was, it was horrible. It felt particularly dark. And I, I can't promise you that we won't be in for some more dark seasons in the future. And yet, in spite of it all, in spite of it all, we can join our voices with Mary and we can say, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That's what you say when you trust your king. That should be our disposition. That should be the cry of our hearts. And to that end, I want to ask for the Lord's help. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this day that you've made. I want to thank you for your church, not just here, but your church scattered across the world, across the generations. Lord, I thank you that 
you are building your church and the gates of hell won't stand against it. Lord, I thank you that you're building your church not with superstars, but with people. Uh, broken, lost people who need a savior. I thank you, God, that you've been building your church from the very beginning and picking up the disenfranchised and the lost and the forgotten and the neglected and just showing the, the immense value that you've placed upon human beings. Lord, I thank you for the women that we've considered uh, over the last five weeks. I thank you for the testimonies of their lives, the lessons that we could learn. And Lord, I'm mindful of the fact that we have a room right now with 70 people and there are probably 70 stories here that we would benefit great, greatly from. Lord, 70 stories that would bring you great glory as we see all that you've done. And Lord, I pray that you would give us courage uh, because Lord, as we're living in the midst of these stories, we don't know how it ends. And that way we're, we're kind of like Mary. We hear the call. We, we hear Jesus say, take up your cross and follow me. We see the cost but we don't see how all the pieces are going to play out in this life. And yet, unlike Mary, Lord, we've gotten this incredible glimpse of how this story ends. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to live with faith. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to live with humility. Uh, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to live with expectation. Lord, I, I pray for expectation in us. Lord, that we would never be those people who are always wringing our hands and hoeing and humming and looking at the brokenness of the world in despair. God, I pray that we would be ones looking out and seeing that the, the fields are ripe for the harvest. And Lord, your word tells us the workers are few. I pray that you would see fit to use us, Lord. As you, as you use Mary for her purpose, Lord, for her assignment, Lord, I know that there are 70 assignments that you have for those of us in this room. Things that you've equipped us for, given us all that we need for things that would, would probably blow our minds if we could see the impact of what you would do. Lord, I pray that we would just say, here I am, your servant. Lord, use us as you see fit for your great glory. Uh, Lord Jesus, you are the king that we need. You're the king that we love. We're so thankful to be under your leadership. Uh, there's no other leadership that we, we desire. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you're in complete control, complete control. Help us to remember that. Uh, if we happen to move into another stretch of darkness or discouragement, Lord, help us to remember that the king is still on his throne and he is good. Lord, I pray for your church today. I pray for all the people who are gathered here. And, and I imagine there are some who are just feeling really uh, defeated and depleted. And God, I just pray that by the power of your spirit, you would fill them up today. God, that we would be ever being filled by your spirit, that you'd meet us in our need and that there would be no lack. God, we thank you that you are not stingy with your people. Um, you are good. You know us. You know our weakness. You know our need, and you love us. Uh, Lord, would you meet us in a special way in this season? And uh, Lord, we thank you for all that we've learned, all that we've seen over the weeks as we've walked through this genealogy. And I pray, God, that our hearts now would just marvel at the star of the show. Uh, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would awaken our hearts to love you more and more each day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Worship team, would you lead us?